Amen. All right. We've got uh, a lot to do tonight on sharing the gospel with Hindus. But before we get into this, I just want to kind of do a pop-up survey. What are some of the things that come to your mind when you think of Hinduism? Red dot. <laughs> Red dot, okay. All right, we're actually going to cover that in just a second. We can be honest. Cows, Cows? all right, okay. Mm-hmm. A lot of gods. They say upwards to 330 million. So just a few there. Well, what, what else? Anything come to mind when, when, when you think of... What's that? Idols. Idols, yes. Yes, we're going to get to that as well. You know, the, the interesting thing about Hinduism is that it's so hard to say Hinduism is. And uh, what we're going to try to do tonight is do... An application from Acts chapter 17, you you can hold that in your Bibles, but most of us know the background there. Paul is there before a pagan audience. It's him, and he's there before all of these Greeks, and they're just wanting to hear some new thing, and he tells them about the unknown God. And he says, I see that you are very religious. Can you imagine what Paul would have seen with all of these different gods, these this innumerable amount of gods that the Greeks and that the Romans were all about. Because the Romans were like, okay, you have that God. We haven't heard of that God. Let's just adopt that God into our pantheon. But we know as Christians, what's the problem with holding to many gods? What's the problem with polytheism? It's definitely confusing. Right, right. Yes, but see right there, and this is something that may be confusing. I've, I told on this several years ago. I had a lot of people kind of scratching their head through 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 the lesson because you and I, as Westerners, as Americans, we we go based upon things like logic and reason. That if God is God, then what is not God? Everything that's not God. But in Hinduism, it's an Eastern religion, so it doesn't bring the law of non-contradiction, logic, things like that, that we would understand. So when we go through some of this stuff, it may seem bizarre, and that's because it is. So what we're going to do through this lesson tonight is, number one, uh, prepare ourselves to know the basics of Hinduism, not not all of the, the, the fine details, so that we'd be able to talk to someone about Christ and also... Uh, just studying for this, I felt a deep and profound sense of sadness. I really did. Uh, I taught taught this several several times throughout the years, and something that has always come to me when I study Hinduism is how spiritually dark it is. It is such a dark religion. There is no hope. There is spiritual slavery, and it is profoundly sad. So when we go through this information, I want you to just... Ask the Lord to search your heart, to give you a passion to see these people saved. Now, a lot of us, we may not have a heavy, uh, I guess, interaction with a lot of Hindus, but we can pray that God would break the chains, especially in places like Nepal and India that are strongholds for this, for this philosophy. But this is the way uh, the Upanishads, which is kind of like, it would be compared to the Hadiths in, in Islam, which is kind of like, or the, um, the Talmud, in Judaism, it's kind of like the right-hand commentary uh, of, of the religion. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, In the beginning there was nothing here at all. Death alone covered this completely, as did hunger. For what is hunger but death? 
Now, our Bible begins with, in the beginning, what? Um, God created the heavens and the earth. What a, what a, what a positive beginning, right? In the beginning, you have an all-powerful good God who creates something that is, in the words of the Bible, very good. That's what God said about the creation. But in Hinduism, you begin with death and with hunger and ultimately hopelessness. So that's the way the story begins in Hinduism. Uh, a few questions. Where do Hindus live? We know that uh, Nepal, ninety or 89% follow Hinduism. But most Hindus live in India. That's the bulk of it. And there are over a million Hindus here. Uh, Trish, uh, what does a red dot mean on a forehead? This dot called a vindhya or a teat signifies that the wearer is a Hindu. A black dot indicates that the girl is unmarried. A red dot that she is married in the practice probably dates back to the Indus civilization in the 3rd millennium B.C. So that's just to give us a little bit of uh, knowledge there so we're not just awkwardly staring at something that we don't understand. Uh, a black <laughs> that, that may be, yeah, let's, yeah. Um, <laughs> yoga. How many of you have ever been confused about yoga? Okay, thanks. Did y'all see, the, did, by the way, did y'all see the Doug Dynasty episode to where, where Willie's supposed to be getting in shape and he goes into the Pilates or the yoga class with his wife and he's got on camo tights and his dad, Big Phil, comes in and he's got the beard and then, and then he says, what in the world has happened to my boy? And it, it's just, it's just awesome. But you know, there are a, a lot of Christians for good reason that say Christians shouldn't do yoga. Now, should Christians do yoga? No. Question. Do most fitness places teach yoga? They have the word that says yoga, but most all of them have no idea how to actually teach yoga. And here's a little FYI. Stretching your muscles is not yoga. That's called stretching. <laughs> we all tracking together? Okay. I've seen a lot of Christians, my I said, they flip out. Oh, you're doing it. I'm like, no, he's warming up for a workout. In Hinduism, yoga is not necessarily a physical thing, but it's a spiritual, we'll just read it here. Uh, Hindus use yoga as a way to become united with Brahma, or the immaterial God, the ultimate reality. The eight traditional stages in yoga are restraint, discipline, posture, breathing, detachment, concentration, meditation, and a trance. If you're doing that at the yoga class at the Y, People will leave because they will think you're weird. Okay, and, I'll be, and here's uh, several um, yoga poses, and that's not what you see at the local YMCA. Okay, and we're not necessarily trying to poke fun, but I want us to, to be very careful to remember that in Hinduism, those those swamis who are doing those contorted, um, I guess, body configurations, they're doing that is what we'll see as a form of demon worship. They're not doing it to warm their bodies up for a workout. Because what they're wanting to do is empty their mind, which allows them to be controlled by the spirits that they worship through the idols that they worship. We'll also see that in Hinduism, they believe... Now, let me ask you like this. If If you worship idols, what do you ultimately worship if you're an idol worshiper? Idol worshippers are not stupid. They know that they're not worshipping 
this wooden statue. They, they know that it's wood. Do you know what they know that they're really worshiping? It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul noted in the New Testament. That they're worshiping demons. And one thing that I appreciate about Hinduism is that it's honest. Do you know what they say? They say, we believe that the demon that the idol represents lives inside the idol. Let that sink in. You're Hindu, you're bound in fear that if you don't do certain things, but yet you go to this temple that has an idol and you believe that the spirit that could do your family harm unless you give fruit and vegetables and whatever offering lives inside that idol. Imagine the fear. And then contrast to how we've been set free in Christ. So the origin of origins of Hinduism, it's known as the world's oldest religion. Um, what does the Bible say about kind of the earliest uh, rebellion against God? Anybody know? Okay, yes, yes, Lucifer's rebellion against God. Let's, let's go with, with planet Earth. When, it, when did it really begin to go? What's that? Uh-huh, and God wiped it out, started over, and then he told them to go where? But what did they do? Yes, and then what did God do to them again? Scattered them up by force. So here's the interesting thing, and this is once again how we know the old preachers were right. The old preachers in the Old Testament, the old preachers here in America, there, there, is, there is a theory, hey Heather, um, in, in scholarship right now that's gaining a lot of ground, and it's called original monotheism. For years and years and years, this is what you'd be taught at a university. Hinduism is the world's oldest religion, and the way that we got to monotheism, the belief in one God, is that it began with the belief in all these different gods, and slowly it evolved to a belief in one God. Now we're realizing that through actually studying these religions that the opposite is true. Do you realize that polytheism is a corruption of original monotheism? It's very interesting. We'll, we'll see why that's the case in just a few moments. So here's how, here's how Hinduism came to India. It was brought by invaders from Iran. You can remember this. Uh, about 1500 BC, we can call it the Caucasian invasion, okay? Uh, these guys were a lot lighter skin than the Indians, so they invaded and they brought this caste system and a very elaborate system of religion. So here's kind of a map for us. Um, we've got Hinduism that is populating, symbolized by the white, most of India, and we notice in the top, I guess that would be the, nor- uh, the northwestern corner of India, or what used to be India, that's yellow for Islam. We, we all understand that Pakistan used to be a part of India. And then when the British gave over control to avoid an absolute civil war and a massacre of millions of people, they said, well, we'll let India, which is primarily Hindu, be India, and we'll let the Muslim area of India be its own nation called Pakistan. Very, very interesting. And the British were very wise in that because they avoided a war. That would have been would have been horrific. So that's where most of them live. Um, we know that there's about 90, 900 million uh, Hindus in the world, right under a billion Hindus. Let that sink in. 900 million. So you get a million people 
And you get 900 groups of them. And there's a million of them uh, here in the U.S. <clears throat> uh, so what does it mean to be a Hindu? Number one, it means to regard the Vedas, which would be like their Bible, uh, as divinely inspired and authoritative. Secondly, it's to accept the caste system. And number three, it's to respect the veneration of the various levels of deity spirits, including the protection of cows. So number one, you've got to believe that false scripture is actually scripture. Secondly, you've got to be uh, a racist. This is interesting. When I was in seminary, there's one of my friends from India. His name was David. His name was actually David Livingston. Isn't that cool? Uh, I told about his dad, who was the the child who was uh, banished from his family because they thought that he had a curse on him. He was the reason that the grandfather died, and he was taken in by a Christian orphanage. Uh, the gospel was shared with him. He got saved, and he was a teenager. Then he started an orphanage. They have over 2,000 kids there today. Amazing story. And David is a dark guy. And I asked David, I said, David, does the caste system in India have anything to do with skin color? He says it has everything to do with skin color. He says, I am right above the untouchables. Think about that. You are determined by your skin color. If you're lighter, you would be a higher class. So that, that, and, and we'll, we'll see that that makes American uh, racism and issues, I think, very small in comparison because at least in America back in the days to where racism was more prevalent, white and black people still did talk together. There were some white and black people that were great friends and that ate together and you know, sometimes even went to church together and confided in one another. We'll see in Hinduism that if you're in the upper class, if even the shadow of a lower caste person touches you, you're made unclean. The way that that translates itself into culture is that if you're lighter skin, let's say you're the top grade, you're a Brahmin, and you see someone who's a Shudra way down or an untouchable, and they've gotten hit by a car in a ditch, you will not touch them because that wouldn't be breaking caste, and that's the worst type of karma that you can do. That's why most all of the humanitarian work that's done in India comes from the West, not from inside. If you believe that if you touch that person that you would be reincarnated in the next life as a bug, a cockroach, a snake, something like that. I don't know about you, but I would think twice about putting a tourniquet on this person. So it's theological. Question. Being that the caste system is so essential to Hinduism, Mahatma Gandhi, of course, opposed it. Was he not exactly a practicing Hindu? Would he be considered like a liberal Hindu? Or, I, mean... I think the answer to that would be, does anybody know who killed Gandhi? A radical Hindu. Because most of us know Gandhi says, I'm not a Hindu. He says, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jew, I'm a Muslim. In other words, he broke caste, but what Gandhi did violated the tenets of Hinduism. And he paid for it with his life. It became illegal in India, but still culturally acceptable. Just like racism is most places in the world. Good, good question, though. So we're going to go through, um, by the way, I don't know if I've told you guys this, we've, we're going to go through every major world religion here in the next few months, and we're going to look at, uh, like, if I can remember it, you've got it on your, we've got, we've got it right here. What we're going to do with each one of these religions, we'll look at the, um, at the history or the origins, then we'll look at their concept of God, then their concept of humanity, then their worship and their lifestyle. Like, in a few, I guess in about a month and a half, we'll look at Islam. Like, why do the Muslims live and operate so differently than people in the Western world? We're also going to look at uh, 
their views of sin and salvation and um, and then the point of life and then how to witness to people. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. But even in, uh, you, I don't know if this is in your notes, we tried to get everything we could on, on one page. And this was after Mary left, so I don't know how to put it on front and back. So sorry if you're having to use a, a magnifying glass. Um, in Hinduism, they do believe uh, in an original sky god. Now, that kind of sounds Native American to us, but when you're doing studies in religion, let that remind you of an ultimate, all-powerful god that virtually every people group on the planet has in their history some remembrance of a god who is in control of everything. Now, us as Christians who know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then Bad things happen because man disobeyed. Isn't it interesting to you, at least it is to me, that in most of these world religions that believe in many gods, that there still is the memory of an original God who was above all and who controlled all. So that is embedded uh, in, in Hinduism. Um, there is what we could call the God core. Uh, within uh, Hinduism, there's Brahma, who's the creator, Vishnu, who's the preserver, and then Shiva is um, the destroyer. And I didn't know this until today uh, when I was reading uh, Wen Corduan's new book, which, by the way, if you guys are looking for a great way to understand world religions, go ahead and get this off of um, wherever. I mean, they probably carried it Lifeway. It's Neighboring Fates, A Christian Introduction to World Religions by Winfried Corduan. It's an awesome, awesome book. I'm going to put it here. This is his updated version. I have the old one. But I didn't realize, um, and I, I, I just put down here, Shiva's R-rated test for uh, obeisance between the, tr- the three. In other words, to be considered the top among the three. I don't even feel comfortable uh, telling that tonight. And a lot of times we're very honest. But let me just say this. Deep within the core of Hinduism, it's very immoral. And a lot of Hindu art uh, is pornographic. Uh, We'll just, we'll just leave it at that. Whereas what we see in the Bible, uh, God is a God of morality and order and respect. And honestly, how Shiva got to be uh, the trump card within this relationship borders on the obscene. I'm just going to leave it at that. If you guys want to know about it later on, let me uh, ask me. But we have a mixed crowd here. And most of the time, I, we go ahead and just say it, but I really don't feel comfortable. That's how bad it is. Um, the number of Hindu gods, you re- referenced that, Whitney, around 330 million. Here's what Corduan says in his book. Let this sink in when, when you guys have your prayers tonight. Just saying all of their names at the rate of five seconds a name would take 52 years. That'd make pray- your prayer life a little bit difficult, right? And to think about it, you know, if, if they're all deity, then how... how I'm probably missing something that's important somewhere along the line. Imagine how that would affect your hope. Well, there's no way to have a personal relationship with Right. And, and that's something that we'll hopefully get to if we have time. Um, I think right here, yes, that God is impersonal. Now, we know from the Bible, boy, it's so cool because the Bible even uses terms, they call these... Uh, anthropomorphisms like like God would feel like us. Now we know that God is is God. Um, he's not affected by us. He's the one who affects a change in the world. But I, w- I want us to think about this, that if God is impersonal, then that means, like you said, Trish, you cannot have a relationship with Him. You can't. If something's a force, you can't. 
Maybe there's somebody out there that has a great relationship, they think, with electricity. That's just strange, all right? Or gravity. It's like, I love gravity. Me and gravity are like this. You know, it's like, okay, all right. Uh, you're that guy who tries to do real yoga at the Y, too. Okay. Um, but uh, God is also, which they call God, the ultimate reality, Brahman. In, in, uh, in Hinduism, he's unknowable. And they would say this as well. That the physical world is not reality. Now Buddha rebelled against this and he says, no, this is real. That's why in Hinduism, that's another reason why you don't see a whole lot of humanitarian work from Hindu uh, groups. Because why, should I, why does it really matter if this is not real? Now most of us in America, we kind of make jokes with the freshmen who come home from like psychology class. And the professor says, is this really weird, real? And they're like, well, if I punch you in your face, then we'll ask who's real. You know, that's all that, that type of stuff. But think if you actually believe that this is not, this is not real. <clears throat> and we believe in Christianity that God is not stuff, right? God is not this. God is other. God is other than the creation, but we believe that God, that God is personal. Um, in Hinduism, God can be, or Brahman can be worshipped and followed by millions of gods, so there is no necessarily one way, and there's no way you can compare the God in Hinduism to the God of Islam or Christianity or, or anything of the sort. So number three, uh, what do Hindus believe about humanity? Uh, They believe that in each one of us we have something called Atman, which you could, popular American terminology says that this is the spark of divinity within you. Anybody ever heard something like that? Like that spark, that spark of the divine, that God in you. Basically, Hinduism teaches that we're all little gods to some degree. Even, you know, there are some of us that are real stinkers. We may have to go deep down to find the Atman, but still, we're Atman, you know. Um, which is which is basically pantheism. Now, somebody tell me, how, how does this concept differ? This is a fairly obvious question. A lot of implications. But how does this differ from Scripture's view of what we are as humans? How could, how could you ever have a real sense of right or wrong, and how could you ever develop a society that could truly base um, you know, civil right, rights and wrongs. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Gandhi did that. But we all understand that Gandhi violated every tenet of Hinduism to do it. And he died for it. Now, obviously, Gandhi was not a follower of Jesus Christ, but I do think that he had, for the most part, a good idea of the law that God has placed in our hearts, such as mistreatment of other people. We just know inherently that's wrong, even if all of these religious leaders are telling us, well, that they are experiencing that suffering because of their karma. We still know there's something that's pushing us to say, I want this person to be helped, even if people are telling us that it doesn't matter. So number four, how does it affect their lifestyles? There's a lot of different brands and styles of Hinduism, but there are three connecting practices those are the three debts. Number one, the debts to the rishis, the ancient recorders of the Vedas, which is like their Bibles, or their Bible. Number two would be the debt to the gods. And number three, the debts to the ancestors. Do you realize that we could, I guess, summarize Hinduism up in one word, and it's debt. You are in debt. And here's what, we're going to get to it tonight. We are so on track. I'm so excited. 
I, before, before we get into reincarnation and karma, think about it like this. Even if you do your best at paying your supposed debts to all these millions of gods, to all sorts of things, there is no guarantee that that will actually even help you more than just a tiny amount in the next life. Now think about how this contrasts to the grace that's offered us in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and it's not of works, it's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. How would this affect how you live, your worship, your lifestyle? If you could never pay these debts, but yet you have to have to pay them, lest you be reincarnated in a very low form. No kind of peace or assurance at all. Walk around depressed and oppressed. Mm, That's good. That'll preach. Depressed and oppressed. I think it would overwhelm a lot of people and they probably just would not care. Mm. Because it would just be like, well, I can't, you know, I can't be that good. I can't, you know, overcome this. Right. Yeah, good point. I mean, that, well, what do you guys say, kind of like what Heather's saying here? Like, that's a crushing burden to bear. Here's the thing. How, oh, the, the debts to the gods, like, how much worship can you give a god that can't be satisfied? I don't know. I mean, the debts to the ancestor, how, how much can you honor them? Even in a practical day-to-day, and, and these recorders of, of their scriptures, you see, it never ends. That's why I think for us as as Americans, evangelicals, we sometimes grow. I don't know about you, it's easy for me to overstep how profound the gospel is and that the God of the universe entered into space-time as a human and paid for all of my sin. And He simply extends to me a gift of grace. If I receive that and place my faith in Him, I'm forgiven of everything. When we think about that and we drop that that nugget of truth into the Hindu culture, you, that's revolutionary. I mean, that is freedom. It's one thing if we're here in America and man says, I've got a problem with drinking, or you know, someone says, I've got a problem with explosive anger, and Jesus has set me free from that. Praise God. But when you're talking about this type of debt and pressure, and when Jesus comes in, that is an absolute revolution of hope. And it's awesome. Uh, here's a few... Um, Hindu customs, this would be called Suti, S-U-T-T-E-E. Uh, the British actually banned it. Uh, ladies, this is a widow being burned alive on the funeral fire of her husband. When the British came into India, this was a, it was a Hindu Indian custom to where if your husband died, ladies, you went with him. Which somebody said, it's almost a morbid sense of humor, but that would be a very high incentive to keep your husband healthy. But the British came in. Thankfully, they weren't influenced by postmodernism at the time. He says, well, that may be your truth. They came in and the British military banned it. Uh, this would be the drinking of holy water from the Ganges River. Even though we don't have the projection quality here, you can see how nasty the water is. They believe that it is actually holy water. And they would get in the Ganges River, which most of us know one thing about the Ganges River is that you don't want to drink the water. And they drink it thinking... Now think about this. You drink this dirty water thinking that it will purify you from your sins. Whereas the Bible says it's the blood of Jesus that forgives of all sins. Think of that type of slavery. Uh, not only that, um, I, I, we'll just go past this. I'll explain that last picture. 
That's probably a good thing that we don't have the best quality, but that was a person being skewered in their back um, through multiple lances and um, pins and so forth, thinking that in doing that and also getting all sorts of... Uh, we'll, we'll go back here. You notice the guy on the right, he basically has a key uh, type of... I don't know what you call that. Device that's put through his cheeks. They mangle their bodies in a way to work off their bad karma, so to speak. And once again, if we were to speak to a Hindu in India, we can tell them there's no reason for you to bleed because the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. You see, the gospel is so applicable in these situations when sometimes we think, well, all we have is just the old story of Jesus dying for our sins. It matters and it does work. This is just a picture here, uh, I think it was a couple years ago, of the violence in, against Christians in Orissa, Indian, or India. Um, what I think a lot of the news outlets don't tell us is that uh, a lot of the traditional Hindu homes put out kids that they're, I guess they're witch doctors apparently, tell them that are cursed. Somebody tell me what the historic Christian response is to children that have been exposed or left to die or orphans. What has been the historic Christian response? Yes, by way of, most of the time, orphanages. Christian. I mean, most of us have heard multiple Christian orphanages in India. Think about this. If you're a little Indian child, you're kicked out of your family for being born on the wrong day or having a curse, and Christians adopt you, put you in this facility and teach you and feed you and clothe you and show you the love of Christ, who are you probably going to be a follower of? Jesus. Well, when you go into a traditional Hindu culture, that's not okay. Even though, this is the dirty little secret, even though Hindus say that there are millions of ways, millions of gods, they are inconsistent in many places in India because this type of persecution is illegal against Christians, but it's still socially acceptable. It's the type to where legally on the books, you can be prosecuted for it if you destroy the property of Christians, do them physical harm, but it's where the policemen look the other way. That's another uh, aspect of uh, Hindu custom. Uh, Hindu temple worship, we touched on this earlier. Uh, Wynne Corduan says this in his book, that the gods live in the statues. The temples, and more specifically the statues, are the actual home address of these gods. Now think about that. If you think that these are real, and obviously there's demonic spirits that are behind these, oppressing these people, imagine the fear that would be in your heart if you went into these temples knowing that there's a spiritual presence there that if you don't give them a certain level of obedience, you and your family could be cursed. That's horrible. What do they believe about sin and salvation? Well, they believe that there are three ways to attain knowledge. Number one would be discipline, asceticism, extreme self-denial. Some of us have seen maybe shows or pictures of these uh, Indian swamis or, or um, uh, medicine men, I guess you could call them. And they're extremely, extremely skinny. It's like they're starving to death. They're doing that in order to gain knowledge, to gain salvation. Number two would be a duty to cast, uh, karma. And number three would be devotion to the gods. And it supposedly um, protects from greed. Now, what does Scripture say about salvation? How do you attain it? Through faith. Is that a work? No. And the deception is that something that Heather mentioned a minute ago. I can't do this. I can't do this much. That's something that in these false religions, they always say, do a little bit more. Right? 
That's it. Just be devoted. Devote yourself to extreme asceticism and self-denial. You know, like they said, Buddha lived on like one grain of rice for a day, which is obviously not true. And all sorts of things that teach people to deny themselves in order to get to God. When Christianity says God has already come down and he's offering himself to you through faith. Uh, the caste system in Sanskrit, which is the old uh, language uh, that the that the I guess the invaders brought down from from Iran, the word for for caste is varna, and literally it means color. Very interesting, right? It literally means color. Uh, it was an attempt to to subjugate these darker people to the lighter skin uh, invaders. So here's a little diagram of the caste system. On top, you've got the Brahmin, which is people group, mostly their light skin. Uh, and then the, the Kshatras, secondly, and then the Vaishyas on the third, and the Sudras, or this, you can say it two different ways. Sometimes the English translation will include the, the H, but it doesn't really matter. But they won't allow that. You have to marry within your own caste. So like if, what I think we mentioned earlier, if the Brahmin, uh, the untouchables, we've probably heard about Chuck Colson's ministry to them, absolutely will bring tears to your eyes, how he goes into the prisons. Imagine prison in India and you're an untouchable. Unbelievable. And he shares the gospel and these people are weeping to know that they are not untouchable. And he tells the story about Jesus touching the leper. I mean, absolutely will break your heart. And these men just crying out to be saved by Jesus. It's awesome stuff. But if, uh, if the, even the shadow uh, of some of these lower castes touches the upper, then they're defiled. So anything such as intermarrying between the caste uh, among strict Hindus is, is anathema. Even though it's technically legal to do that uh, in India today, strict Hindus don't don't do it. Uh, the twice born, which you noticed on that last diagram, it can be identified by a cord that is looped over around one shoulder, which hangs down to the waist, and it symbolizes their supposed twice born status. Now, think about this. Think about how this logically breaks down. How do you know that you're twice born, or reincarnated, because of what? Which caste you're in? Who originally decided the castes? The conquerors. Just let that sit. See? It, 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 it breaks down. <clears throat> um, you like this picture? Common police? Pretty cheesy, right? Um, <laughs> reincarnation. Uh, samsara in, in uh, Hindu religion, it means wanderings or existence. And I didn't include a picture of this, but if you can imagine a big wheel, some of us have seen those in books, and it's got all of, I guess, all of creation inside that wheel, and that means that you're repeatedly born and you die, repeatedly born and you die, and it's the wheel of suffering. In fact, if you asked a strict Hindu what is life, they wanted to be very technical with us, they could say it is a wheel of suffering. Um, most people in the West think that reincarnation is that I get another chance. Y'all ever heard that before? That's awesome, man. Well, at least this is not my only go. In Hinduism, it is the exact opposite. Um, It means slavery. It means that I will continue to come back and I have no guarantee of what I'll come back as. And karma is the determining factor in the process of reincarnation. Um, It's basically the law of cause and effect. Uh, of moral causation that cause 
It causes uh, exactly one-to-one reciprocation of one's deeds, whether they be good or bad. But here's the thing. A lot of people in America, what do you think most people here think when we bring up the subject of karma? What do you think? Okay. All right. Getting even. Revenge is a tough guy, right? Okay. A lot, a lot of people in America think that good karma is being a nice person. In Hinduism, good karma is being faithful to your caste, which also involves not interacting with people of another caste. Um, we'll go to the next part here. The thing about karma is there's no way to gauge it. There's no assurances. There's no specific descriptions. Or prescriptions. In other words, there's no way to know exactly what your deeds are going to produce in the next life. <clears throat> uh, if you're suffering from bad karma, there's no remedy other than to suffer for it. Now, I'm not sure if that showed up in your notes. I had to cut some stuff out. But I want all of us to think about this. That if everything that you ever do wrong, you have to pay that back with your ounce of flesh, to use the old story, to pay, give the devil his due. There's something um, within Christianity, and it's called grace, right? How does, how does grace destroy this concept here? The concept that you have to suffer, to pay back through suffering for anything you've done wrong. Absolutely, it's forgiven. It's, yeah, you're not in debt. Now, can you, can you imagine explaining this? To someone who believes this is the case, like karma is a mechanized type of deal to where you have to pay all that back. But understand, you know what Jesus did? He took all of our bad karma combined, every single bit. Can you imagine what Jesus went through? And he suffered for that. See, a lot of the world's religions understand one thing that most Americans don't, is that sin has to be paid for. Even C.S. Lewis said like 40 years ago, the reason why it's difficult for us to understand sin and punishment in the Western world is because we don't believe in sin anymore. We believe it's all issues of a mental condition or a chemical imbalance. We don't believe in sin in the West anymore. But most of the world's religions still do. So that's a great way to kind of springboard um, into the gospel. Uh, Let's think about this, and we'll probably have to end on this note. Karma and compassion. Okay. Let's see we let's say we see someone lying in a ditch in India and they're suffering from let's say leprosy. According to Hindu theology, why are they in the ditch suffering and dying from leprosy? In bad karma, who's bad karma? Theirs. Absolutely. So this person that is moaning and groaning in this ditch They're there because it's their fault. All of it. Even if they're a good guy, good girl in this life, that's their fault. Now here's the dirty secret. What if I go over and help them and alleviate their suffering? What am I interfering with? Not only their just punishment, but I'm also interfering with their working off that's that bad karma through suffering. In other words, if I go help them and alleviate the suffering, I'm prolonging the suffering. And not only that, I may cause myself to be born. Yeah, yeah, it, that could be me or I could be a cockroach. Or, I mean, so, you, you see, 
Do you see how that practically works itself out by way of compassion? Which that's why most of the, the compassion-based, I guess we could say, ministry that ministries there are all, uh, for the most part, Western-based, funded and operated, and virtually all of those are from Christians. Because we know what Jesus did when he saw suffering. He met the need. Now, we can't go around healing everybody. Maybe God does give us a special gift of healing sometime. I think that's possible. But we can't just sit there and watch people suffer. Um, This is the picture of the Jesus Temple in New Delhi. We know the Hindus are very open to other religions. They respect Jesus. Jesus is a good guy to Hindus. But um, we're going to go here finally to how we witness to Hindus. Number one, avoid all references to hunting. Why? You just killed an ancestor or something. Exactly. And sometimes people joke about that in America. Well, I'm going to go tell them, you know, I shot that deer. It's like, if you're talking to a Hindu, if you hunt, you don't hunt then. Okay? All right? And something else, this may seem random, but strict Hindus are vegetarians and eggs are considered meat. Especially for the upper classes. So... Like, we made this mistake with our Hindu neighbors in Florida. Florida is a huge melting pot. Uh, one of our neighbors came down. He's playing basketball with my brothers. And he said, do you want to come over for dinner tonight? And uh, the guy's name was Vikram. And he said, okay, what are you having? And Justin did. Yeah, I mean, he was like 15 years old, just honest. <laughs> we're, ha- we're having roast beef. Vikram's eyes grew huge, and he says, no, thank you, no, thank you. Just got, just walk, just walk down the street to his house. So let's remember if we're talking to Hindus, you know, if you're out to lunch, maybe that's a good time to get a salad, not a chicken salad. And that, why, why would we do that? It's because we're supposed to be all things to all men, right? Um, be sensitive to the exploitation of India by British Christians. You know, for 200 years, they were under British rule, and the British represented themselves as Christians, and they didn't act like it. So let's make sure we make the distinction there. Uh, emphasize the work of Christ, which de-emphasizes the work that we do. And uh, emphasize salvation through Christ versus the cycle of samsara or reincarnation over and over again. And emphasize the freedom from fear that Christ gives versus the fear of demons, idols, karma, etc., and then, and this is what Corduan says, remember that Christianity is not about fulfillment, but about salvation from sin and its effects. And one of the things I think that truly makes a difference when we're talking to Hindus is they understand karma, they understand sin, things like that. But understand the gift of grace that Jesus gives to break any chain of the past, even if you don't believe uh, in reincarnation, which we obviously as Christians do not, but the gift of grace breaks the chains of sin, it breaks the chains with the past, and it is a confirmation that we will be with God. That's what most Hindus want. Jesus is God who's come down to us. So, any any questions there? Um, and obviously that would be strict Hindus. Obviously there's some that would probably help, help the person out in the ditch, westernized Hindus. But I don't know of anybody, I've never read anything about them trying to increase the suffering because that would also cause bad karma on them. 
Yeah, and especially if, if it's a person of another caste, they just don't have anything to do with them at all, good or bad. So basically, it's kind of just letting itself work it, you know, letting it work itself out. Yeah, it's a good question. Buddha's claim was to have been the first person to complete this cycle and get out of it and mm-hmm. comes back to helping. Do right. traditional Hindus believe anybody has completed the cycle? Buddhism, according to Hinduism, is heretical. Okay. They wouldn't believe, Hindus wouldn't believe anybody's completed the cycle and gotten out of nope. the wheel. Okay. Nope. And even we'll get to Buddhism. I think it was definitely an improvement million miles away from being saved from Christianity, but at least Buddha broke the caste and he got down and he, cleaned, he cleansed the man's wounds. He helped the guy who was sick, which is um, different from Hinduism. This is just my opinion, and we'll, I guess we'll end on this. I've been able to put in a fair amount of study for world religions. I think that Hinduism is by far the most demonic, the most oppressive of all the world religions. Um, at least with Islam, we get to one God. At least with Buddhism, we get to something called compassion. Just for a societal, uh, a better society. Um, but it's very sad. So I hope that this, this has not depressed us for these people, but I hope that it moves us to pray for the Hindus that are in spiritual bondage.